Welcome to Episode 5 of Living in Recovery, a podcast devoted to sharing the stories of fellow CBP employees who are living in recovery with an addiction. The focus of this podcast is to share the experiences of those who have struggled with alcohol or drugs in the hopes of breaking the stigma that's often associated with addiction. Also, the goal of this podcast is to stimulate hope amongst those who may be struggling but are discouraged or intimidated by the prospect of seeking help. As a disclaimer, the words expressed in this podcast are based on personal experiences alone and are not meant to be taken as medical advice or to promote one method of treatment. Today, John shares his recovery experience and how treatment helped him come to terms with his addiction. John is a contracting officer in OIT. Now, John discusses what works for him in his approach to recovery. John, when did you first know you had a problem with alcohol or drugs? First realize, I guess, well, I've had addictive, of addictive personality in hindsight pretty much all my life. If one was good, two was better. Like when I was a kid, um, I remember the first time I, uh, I snuck into my mom and dad's medicine chest. And because my dad had back problems, as everybody's parents had back problems, right? And there was a bottle of pills and I took a pill and I thought I was superhuman after that because I just felt great. Well, I, I say this, I didn't feel like myself. I didn't feel like my regular self and I felt different and I liked the different John. And I always wanted that different. So that started a life of me seeking, how can I be altered? So in hindsight, I knew at a young age I was different. And then it just, then it was just a matter of substances. Like what other substances can make me different? But when I really admitted I had a problem with alcohol, uh, it was about 2018. That's when I finally gave up. That's when I realized that I couldn't live with it. And I definitely couldn't live without it. Like it had become the master of my life and I couldn't go. I couldn't go a couple hours without having a drink. Otherwise, I, you know, the, the tremors would start and other things would start and it, it had become the master of my life. So that's when I knew I absolutely had a problem. That's when I admitted that my life had become unmanageable. And when you realized that in 2018, what thoughts or feelings did you have when you realized your alcohol and drug use was an issue? So that's a good question. So, okay. So nobody, of course, nobody wants to admit they're powerless over something and nobody especially wants to admit they're an alcoholic or an addict, right? That's like, because you always think of somebody like that as you think of the word like junkie or when you hear the word alcoholic, you think of somebody living under a bridge with a, you know, a bottle in a paper bag, somebody who's lost everything. I didn't lost anything. I didn't have any DUIs. Um, I was doing good at work. I got awards. I got awards at work. I didn't know what they were for, but I had gotten awards at work for doing good stuff. My life was successful. I had a house, a nice house. I had a wife. I had kids. Everything was on track. I had the dog. Everything was doing great on the surface, but deep inside, everything was just terrible. And that's what it was. I had a hole in my, in my soul. I had, uh, I've heard a wise man once referred to it as gangrene of the soul. Something was eating at me. I was rotting inside and there was, I was looking for something to fill this void in me. Just like I said, when I was a kid, you know, I was looking for something to feel different. I had tried so many, so many substances and things 
to alter the way I felt because I couldn't deal with me. I couldn't deal with life on life's terms. I couldn't deal with how I felt about things. I couldn't process my emotions. So I was seeking outside substances to change my emotions and how I felt. And I just couldn't deal with it anymore. And at that point, I realized that I couldn't go on living that way, that I had, there had to be a change. There had to be something. It had to stop. That's interesting. Nothing was going on. No, no no real trigger or anything. Well, okay. So there was at that, I I must, I didn't answer that question properly because there was triggers. So I was going through a extremely bad at, well, my marriage was rough. Um, I was in an abusive relationship. Um, not, I wasn't abusive, but it was an abusive relationship. The, the kind that is seldom towards the man. And it was pretty rough. A lot of, uh, postpartum depression and things like that. And, um, things were pretty, pretty bad. And on top of that, I'd had a major foot reconstruction and they had to cut all five of my bones, amputate my heel and then nail all the stuff, not nail, screw all the stuff back together. Right. And they had given me uh, 30 days worth of Dilaudid, right? And I was so, in hindsight, this is idiot, idiot, this is lunacy, but I was so scared of becoming addicted to uh, pain pills that I said, I'll, I'll have to quit and I'll just drink to cover up the pain. Well, and that was the step. So after taking all those pills, so at the end of taking the pills, I was trying to level off the pills. And drink, I guess, to match the pain relieving qualities or some kind of insanity to that. And it ended up, I guess it was December or November. I think it was November. I don't remember because I was, well, you'll, you're about to hear how completely out of it I was. Um, my wife had to call an ambulance. And I was taken to the hospital with a 0.34 blood alcohol content. And I was in, um, well, I was in pretty bad shape. I was DTing from all the Dilaudid and um, the the alcohol. So I was in really bad shape. So that is what you call a full-blown, hey, you, have, you know you have a problem. The doctors were like, you know, you know this dang near killed you. And I was like, yep. But that wasn't enough to stop me. That, that, hey, you're going to die. That's not enough to stop you. When you're an alcoholic, it, they could, people could say words all day long. But that's not going to stop you. Yeah. What did eventually? What did is, okay, that's the deep question, right? So everybody talks about you have to hit bottom. That's like the common phrase everybody uses. You have to hit bottom. That means, you know, you have to hit a point where you feel like you can't go any further. Like, that's it for me. I, I decided to stop, right? Now, some people, they say reach a high bottom. Some people reach a low bottom. Low bottom is like, I've lost everything. I've had like a whole bunch of DUIs. You know, I had, I've been fired. I have no job. Nothing like that, right? That's like what we call a low bottom. High bottom is kind of like, well, I didn't lose anything, but I just decided I had a problem. The, the low bottom was for me. I was accused of something I didn't do. I uh, was accused of attacking my wife. I didn't do. And um, I was, because of that, I was kicked out of my house for six months. And I couldn't see my daughter. And anybody that knows me knows that my daughter is uh, my pride and joy, right? And she is everything to me. And I couldn't see her for six months. 
and it ruined my life. And I went from having a four bedroom, nice house and, and everything in order to living in crappy motels in the bad part of town, paying for by the night. And all of my suits and, you know, all of my dress clothes in the trunk of my car. And, um, during, and, and during the day, I would dress up for work and, you know, look all spiffy and nice. And I'd go to the Reagan building and put on a show and like everything was fine and try to hold things together. And then at night, I would go back to some crummy hotel where there was legal activity going on all around me. And I would just buy bottle after bottle and I would try to, I would try to drink myself to death. And I, I said, that's enough. And I, I couldn't do it anymore. But the real point when I decided that I said that was enough was actually before that is the day that I decided to go to rehab is I had a moment and I, I woke up one morning and I was looking for a bottle and I couldn't find a bottle to drink. I had drank everything in the house. Ba alcoholics are bad planners. We always say we're going to, you know, this, this supplies for tomorrow. That way I don't have to worry about tomorrow, but we end up drinking tomorrow. So don't, that's bad, bad planners. And I woke up the next morning and I couldn't find anything. And I knew I was out and I had the shakes really bad. And I knew I couldn't go to the store because my hands were shaking so bad. And I laid down in my bed and I looked at my wife and I said, I have, a, I have I'm an alcoholic and I need to go to rehab. And she didn't even look at me. She just said, well, then go to rehab. And if you need a hug, call your mother. And it hurt. It deeply, deeply hurt. But I knew it was the truth. And so I called my best friend. And he got everything organized and planned. Now, after this fact, I, that's, that's the day when I realized I had a problem. But after that, I still slipped. Because after that was that six months when I was kicked out of my house. But a head full of knowing you're wrong and knowing you can't drink still doesn't change the fact that you know, and it ruins your drinking. So I always knew, and I knew what the path, the right path was, and I always kept going back to the right path. So I went, I knew what the right path was. I hit bottom, and then I went back out, and I decided to dig my hole a little bit deeper. Luckily, thank God, I didn't get a DUI, didn't hurt anybody didn't make things worse, but I knew I had a problem. And so I dug my hole a little bit deeper. And now today I look back on that and I guess I'm kind of grateful because I realize now that I know for a certainty that I can't drink like normal people. So in hindsight, it's all good. I needed to hear that. I needed to do it. So I guess that's when. So you hit your rock bottom, decided to dig your hole a little deeper. What happens when you go to treatment? So I was lucky I went to a really great treatment that CBP has an agreement with. We called it Club Fed because it was full of our fellow government employees. And they teach you things. Some people, they tell you that, well, you're too smart for a simple program because the 12-step program is a simple program. And some people want to put more into it. And they teach you. The psychological stuff and the mental stuff that's going on in your head. So my brain is hardwired to want alcohol. 
all of my little synapses go crazy when I get it. And if I don't get it, my uh, brain tells my body to throw myself into a crazy fit. Makes me shake, makes me do crazy stuff. And it's called the obsession. And when you're just starting out not drinking, your body is still obsessed. And you will get these crazy, crazy feelings, not just the shakes, because you can get past the shakes within a couple of days. But it will tell you, you absolutely must have alcohol or you must have your drug of choice or you must have whatever it is you are addicted to. And this obsession will just run your life. But I tell you, that goes away. I can honestly tell you from the other side, from a little bit farther down the path, that that does go away. So there's obsessions and cravings. The obsession is the worst, but it does go away. All you need to do is hold on to something, anything. Anything, your higher power is what we choose to call it, but any anything greater than yourself. And for some people, that's God. For other people, it's a group of your peers that, that want to help you and see you through it. But anything that you can reach out to, that you can latch on to, and that can give you strength and support through all of this. And they will drag you kicking and screaming through those first six months of sobriety and get you to a point where it's just a craving. The cravings only last for a couple minutes. And then you can fight those on your own. Because I assure you, whenever I see a commercial on TV with some new type of liquor or some new type of beer, I look at myself and I go, hmm, I wonder how that tastes. You know how it tastes? I bet it tastes fantastic. But I always think, what's it going to do to me? And I always think it too. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, I'll probably drink too much of it. And then the next day I'll wake up and I'll have the shakes. Oh, and then where will I be a week from now? Oh, and then where will I be a month from now? Oh, and then I'm going to lose my house. I'm going to lose my kids and I'm going to lose everything again. So if you, st if you start learning these little tools and you keep a little mental toolbox and you can keep that stuff in check. I guess it doesn't taste that good when you think no. about it those way, that way. It's, it, the juice isn't worth the squeeze. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's really cool that they teach you it that way, mm -hmm. that if you can deal with those cravings. All you got to do is get a couple minutes through it, and they 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 drift away. So I had a friend, and uh, he called his sponsor one, uh, one night, and he was having really bad cravings. And sponsors are known to be kind of insensitive. They're kind of tough. And a spy, he calls a sponsor and he's he's upset. Like, I'm having a craving. I want to go drink so bad. And the sponsor says, you got any toothpicks? And he goes, yeah, I have toothpicks. He goes, go count the toothpicks. He said, what? He goes, go count the toothpicks. And then hung up the phone. And so he's mad. He's all upset. Count toothpicks, blah, blah, blah. You know, he's all angry, swearing, stuff like that. But he does. He goes, pours out all the toothpicks, counts all the toothpicks. Blah, 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 you know, 167. Puts them back in the little toothpick thing, calls the sponsor. He goes, all right, so there's 167 toothpicks. Why'd you have me count the toothpicks? He goes, you thinking about drinking? No, you thinking about these dang toothpicks. He goes, well, there you go. Yep. Just something to get your mind off of it. So okay. anybody, we have, I just want to throw this out there. We have the best insurance. So a lot of people, the some of their insurances would kick them out after shorter periods. But uh, our insurance is fantastic and it, it will take it. It will let you go the entire 28 days. And I strongly, strongly suggest you take it all 28 days because you are in this beautiful, safe cocoon and you need every single day that you have to get through and to build as much sobriety cushion as you can 
to protect you from the outside world. Because as soon as you step outside those gates, the world is going to hit you in the face again with stress, temptation, and everything else. And it's going to be right back into the frying pan. And you need every single bit of support and, and safety that you have to hold on to. So take advantage of every 28 days. Every morning when I was there, I wasn't a church going fellow when I went there. But every single morning there, I went to the other, they have a little Catholic church. I'm not even Catholic, but I went to the church just because I knew that I needed something greater than myself. And uh, yeah, and I, I utilized every tool they gave me because I said, you know what, while I'm here, I'm going to immerse myself in this. And if it doesn't work, it's not going to be because of lack of trying. I'm going to do what, do what the program says. And if it, you know, I'm going to see if it works. You took everything they had to offer. Everything to include the massages because they do give massages and acupuncture. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So when you come out, you've got this great cushion, this sobriety yep. cushion. Mm -hmm. I love that. And then they say your first day back, you should go to a meeting, right? And they suggest going to a 12-step program, which I'm a member of. So I grabbed this book or grabbed this, uh, I get this app and it says where these meetings are. So I, I, I pull up one and it says it's at six o'clock and it's near my house. So I get all excited. So I'm like, okay. So it's my first day out and I attend this meeting. And it just so happens that it's an all woman's meeting. So I show up and my first month, maybe two months of sobriety, I cried a lot because I was just over overwhelmed with guilt and shame. And uh, I looked at them and I said, I just got out of rehab. I don't know where to go. Blah, blah. So they let me stay and they were very kind and very considerate. And I probably bawled through the whole thing and just cried. And I still see those those ladies on a daily basis or a weekly basis. And um, they've been super supportive and always have been super supportive. And you start building your network of all these people that care about you and want to see you. And uh, these people become your your friends, your your family, more or less, because they're they love you and they're cared. They care about your sobriety. Which is the most important thing in your life. Yeah. When I say that your sobriety is the most important thing in your life, people go, oh, no, my family is the most important thing in my life. That's a good thing to say. Your family is extremely important and God is extremely important. Sobriety is a spirit is a spiritual thing. You have to have God in your life or some type of higher power, I believe. I believe, that's just my opinion, to make it work. But I want to say this. If, if you don't have sobriety, you lose everything that you have to include your family. If, if, you're, if you're a man, you could lose your wife and kids. If you're a mother... You may not lose your kids, but you'll lose the presence of being with them. Yesterday was Mother's Day, and I, I spent time with my family, and I had something that I wouldn't have had in the past. I was present with them. And I enjoy the fact that I could be with them and spend time with my family, and I was there mentally, physically, and spiritually. And we spent time together as opposed to just me being there in the body just the whole time thinking, when can I get another drink? And if you put your sobriety first, trust me, everything else will come along. 
and it will work out. If you just do the next right thing, it will all work out. This is part one of a two-part conversation between John and Stephanie for the Living in Recovery podcast. To hear the second half of this interview, go to CBPNet Wellness and Resilience Programs and then navigate to Substance and Alcohol Misuse Prevention. If you have questions about any of the workforce care directorate programs, including this program, email us cbpresiliency at cbp.dhs.gov.